Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners. So, let's be friends. We've got a packed show ahead of the first race of 2023. That's the Bahrain Grand Prix coming up on Sunday. And coming up on this show, we're going to be talking to a rising star on the mic in the feeder series and in Formula One. Harry Benjamin is going to catch up with us to talk about the art of commentary and a little bit about his work in F1. And then we are going to go through the bottom end of the the teams. We covered the top end quite a lot, but now we're going to look at the teams we think are going to be maybe struggling a little bit more at the back, but fighting no less hard for their relative positions. And then a bit later on, Jono has assembled a team of crack missed apex panelists to look through the Drive to Survive series. It's not a review of the Netflix Drive to Survive series, but they have found some stories and some angles that give them the excuse, really, to recap a little bit of the 2022 season. So look out for that. But first, let me remind you that we're an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. So here on Missed Apex podcast, we like having a punt at some analysis. We fancy ourselves as armchair strategists and we've watched things long enough to make a reasonable guess. And our guesses, although often wrong, are different enough that we're able to have a a debate and a fight about it. Like when Matt incorrectly says this year's 
Renault's year. Oh, he says, this year's Renault's year. Ocon's going to win. And we all get to tell him he's wrong. So you see, our weakness is somewhat of a strength. But it's also very much a weakness as well. So we like to bring you opinions from people who know what they're talking about occasionally. We drag them kicking and screaming from the heart of motorsport to my shed. So today I'm talking to a very interesting young man who is already an established voice in the feeder series comms box as well as commentating on BBC Five Live for Formula One, a rising star in F1 media. It's Harry Benjamin. Welcome to the shed. Thank you very much. What a pleasure to be here in the shed. You pick me up far too much. Uh, I know absolutely nothing. I just guessed. Well, that can't be true, though, because you have to know <laughs> all the things to be excited and informed at the start of the, a race. And listening to your beginning of race commentary, you don't seem to skip a beat. So you know exactly which car is which, who we're meant to be watching, and there's no pause and it all comes out in one and and i can tell you do not have to fake that enthusiasm for motorsport oh no not at all the enthusiasm comes very naturally uh yeah i well, yeah okay well, i do a lot of homework and, and hard work <laughs> when it comes to, to particularly formula three you know that's hard when there's 30 cars on the grid and yeah. you know half of them look the same and they're all new drivers and they're young so you don't quite know mm. that much about them and and then they will come hurtling down to turn one and you've got to try and call it. And I think it was Bahrain last year, my first proper Formula 3 race where I, I was on my own. I didn't have a co-commentator oh, wow. who would normally be able to pick up pick up on all the other stuff. I didn't have Alex Brundle to pick up on the other stuff that was going on in the background. So I was like, right, I've got to somehow be able to call this entire race on my own. And it was Formula 3, so it was absolute carnage at the same time. Uh, and the first race of the season, so you're still getting your bearings and things like that. But I do do a lot of homework. I always say to people, it's like revising for, for your exams. You know, I make lots of notes and I've got spreadsheets and all this kind of stuff. So I get I get very bogged down in all that. And it's just the way of communicating it to the casual viewer. Like you sometimes, yeah, you might know, but you have to remind yourself like, oh, poor chair, that's the green car, by the way. And yeah. having to build a story and a narrative whilst also following everything. I mean, I've done a little bit of go-kart commentary back in the days where there was very little commentary talent around. And it is blindingly difficult. I've, I've, I remember doing a race where they just forgot to give me the driver lists. So I was just commentating pretty much blindly off a timing sheet going, well, I think that guy's Derek Der Derrickson. Uh, but yeah, so if you don't have a team around you, I'm, you know, I'm assuming that David Croft and Jack Nichols have swarms of people around them. How supported are you guys out there in the feeder series? Uh, well, I th I'll probably speak on behalf of Jack here, having done the BBC commentary as well. It's very, <laughs> very point. small. Yeah. It's a small team. You know, yeah. there are, he's not he's not getting as much support as Crofty will be. Um, in terms of Formula 3, I think, it, it, I mean, I've done some other niche series as well, like Euro Formula Open and GT Open. And, and, and those ones, you know, you've got nothing. You are on your own. You get parachuted and so in. Obviously, yeah. Literally. And Formula 3 is obviously a bit more mainstream and, and it's supported by Formula 1. You know, we it's all FOM backed and it's the same production crew who do it. So and they have a whole team, you know, PR team and everything controlling all that. So I do get lots of stats and facts through and I do feel a lot more supported, and especially if I'm alongside. I think last year we had a rotation of Alex Brundle, Jordan King, Alice Powell, you know, people who I consider they're the experts i'll ask them the question people don't want to know what i think it's it's them they're the important people um so 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 yeah it is it's it, you are supported there's just 
in this modern day world, there's just so much information and things move at a million miles an hour. Mm. It's hard to keep track of all the changes, especially now that in F3, you know, all 30 drivers can have Instagram. They're all doing something different. And in a 45 minute practice, you know, you might want to bring that up at times if there's not much else to talk about. <laughs> and you've just got to try and keep a track of it all and who, how they, how you pronounce their names, where they're from, how old they are. All these kind of things weigh on your mind. This is why I was appraising the Sky team for their coverage of the F1 testing, which is mm. about nine hours a day, three days in a row, with actually not an awful lot happening. And I've done 24-hour endurance races where, you know, it's, I, I was actually on a track where, you know, the, you can't see anything because you were too far away and there weren't lights uh, at night that sufficiently helped you see the track. And but you still have to talk. You still have to fill. So there's that there's that gap between just messing around and having the audience think, are they are they taking this seriously? Or but you can't also just go, yes. And here comes car number four again. Uh, and, no. it, and I can't tell anything. It's test match special coverage, isn't yeah. it? It's, uh, it is. I, I actually really enjoyed it. I was a bit <laughs> jealous of them. I, will, yes, I, I yes, would like I to be in that coverage box because equally it's probably quite hard but also you know you can have a bit of fun it is just testing you know you don't you need to commentate on every lap i think one of my favorite moments was uh watching jolian palmer commentate on his own lap from 2016 in a renault around bahrain which was brilliant so uh just hilarious his commentary on himself so that it, it i think f1's loosening up and has been loosening up over the last couple of years as well in general so um so it's quite i think it's it's more accessible that way and it's more enjoyable to watch as well yeah you can't take yourself too seriously i mean look we're just going to get deep into f1 media coverage but i think one of the standout presentations is, was the channel 4 team a few years back when they had simon jones leading that steve jones steve jones, steve jones by, yeah. out and out kind of entertainer and they just brought this very wild entertainment style and like don't take the, that presentation too seriously but obviously when the mm. racing starts then then you knuckle down Absolutely, I, I love Steve Jones. I think he's brilliant, and I they, they want. I think Channel Four wanted somebody who who wasn't an F one expert, who wasn't mm. a, a nerd about it, and and but who could bring that entertainment. And he's clearly become more and more knowledgeable as years have gone by. So Channel Four's live is brilliant, I think. Uh, and you know, F one TV are amping up their own p- b- broadcast alongside Sky, and and it's a bit of a. I think it's a bit of a golden era, really, in coverage. You know, but on the other side, if you're a commentator, if you make a mistake. Everybody, it will call you out on it. Some and someone else is ready to take your job as well. I don't know, I want to put too much oh, pressure yeah. on, but saying as much as we love watching the feeder series to see who's going to be the next F1 star, we kind of do that a little bit. Sorry, sorry to pile the pressure on with the junior series <laughs> commentators as well. You know, you've got Alex Jacks who's going off and doing great things with Channel Four, and then you see yourselves and Chris and Alex Brundle, and you just you go, oh, which one of those guys is going to be next? And you're all watching david croft to see if he has a you know trips and falls <laughs> oh, i don't think he can i don't think he can do the broadcast i'm ready uh i mean yeah obviously there is a little bit of that um in all of our minds i think we'll all be lying to each no, other no, no, but no. there is there is almost like a, a, a an invisible cue maybe i don't know or, yeah, or you know for who, sure what, ha- what happens next you know who goes up but at the end of the day you, you you don't know either like i never actually really planned on being a commentator that was never really the plan i wanted to be more of the anchor and a, a like host oh. um so which which i i still want to do i love doing the commentary absolutely love it and i was petrified to do it the first time i still remember the first time i did a practice commentary so here you go talk about this so i talked about this the other day Alex Jakes had just announced he was stopping doing Formula 3. And I was talking to F1 already at the time. And I thought, uh, ah, okay, I'm not a commentator, but let's 
this this is a good moment so mm. i ripped a formula two race off of youtube from about three years ago nice austria on my laptop and i had a little sort of handheld mic and i watched the race a few times and i was like and then i was like right okay i'm gonna do some commentary on this race just just do the first like 10 laps thinking that would be easy and i couldn't even get around the first lap without like running out of breath without knowing yeah. what to say and i was just sat at home in my in my room trying to do it and then then once I got cobbled together, you know, two minutes, the fire was so big, it completely destroyed my laptop at the same time. And I was like, oh, my God. But I managed to cobble enough together. And I, that was, oh, I couldn't I couldn't send it. I couldn't export the video. So I basically played the video on um, Premiere Pro because that was just about doing it and filmed it on my iPhone as like close up. So it looked like it filled up the whole screen. <laughs> Press play, filmed it, cropped it on my phone and then emailed it to f1 and said <laughs> hey uh I, i've just done a commentary demo for you i don't know if it's of interest um didn't really hear much and then and then a few six months later uh they rang me and said do you want to do poor super cup um and then and then i got the f3 shot to do uh oh no sorry alex hadn't stepped back from f3 he stepped back from porsche and he was leaving f1 to do channel four that was the reason uh but then he stopped doing porsche super cups then i got the porsche super cup job and then obviously he i think he got covid for one of the races that year and i got the f3 shot there so you know and, and we'll, it, we'll you pretend gotta... you weren't celebrating the fact that he got covid and you had to step in well we'll pretend you were in tears about it but i've been i've, uh, I've been like that sat in a radio station coffee <laughs> coffee room having a laugh with another presenter oh we're great mates aren't we i want your time spot and I, <laughs> and I, he te- I, alex texted me the the day i got f3 and he went so that that austria audition went well then didn't it and i was <laughs> like yeah it did all right alex cheers um but i mean I, I we are you do get on i don't know you know i'm not best friends with him but you know alex we we chat and we've been out for mm. coffee he's given me advice you know all these kind of things so because uh, i think he's 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 the next best thing you know everyone he's he's massive and, Alex uh, Jakes. and i keep saying Jake, yes yeah. you say jacks don't you i, keep I, I don't Jack, know how sorry. to say his name for a while but everyone calls him jakesy so i just went with that um so uh, and he's a brilliant commentator you know he's commentator of the year and things like that so you don't get that for for doing for doing nothing um but you know it is a bit like the driver market at some time you know, we're yeah. all in formula one you, you know you, you don't know who's going to have the seat for next year. I didn't know what I was going to do. Didn't think I'd have F3 last year. You know, that was all quite a, a quick turnaround. And then to get the F1 call up so quickly into sort of my career, I suppose, was was a massive shock. You can call um, it a career if you want. And um, and, yeah, uh, and I, I found the, the coverage, actually, of you doing that, that F1, for the first time on uh, on the BBC coverage. And my goodness, you wouldn't have known. You wouldn't have known. I think you spoke for eighty-five minutes from the start line without taking a breath, and it was uh, yeah, it was brilliant. But look, speaking of the start of a race, like I've been watching yeah. F one for <laughs> years, but in yeah. in like in oh, well over thirty years of watching, that moment before the cars pull away, and that that moment where anything could happen you don't know the order you're trying to see where the drivers you're looking out for are that moment still brings me stress and tension and anxiety and it it pauses time i swear there's just a moment where they pause time before the cars pull off but i'm sure you don't have to fake that kind of anxiety and tension when you're commentating but you've got you've got to somehow talk us through it yeah oh god no the adrenaline that pumps through your veins especially i think on the BBC coverage, you know, they still play the chain and, and that's what you do the grid to. Oh, yeah. So you just come off the back of doing the grid 
with the countdown of the chain. So you're buzzed from doing that. And, you know, I've also got people chatting in my ear. I've got a producer doing this. I've got five live, you know, you might be on the main five live, or you might be on five live sports extra, in <laughs> which case you've got to provide updates, and this, that, and the other and timings. And then you're waiting for the last car to come in the queue. Then Jenny, or Jenny wanted to say something. She put her hand up and talk or Mark Priestley at the time, who was alongside me, he wanted to say something just before. And then I'm thinking, don't muck it up. Don't muck it up. Cause I've got my little thing that I say at the start and I've got to time that right with the lights. So it's like, don't, don't muck it up. Especially the Australian Grand Prix yeah. was my first at Formula One race. So, uh, and you're at, well, we were doing it cause we were doing it remotely. So that's, you know, 4 a.m. in the morning at UK time. So you're a bit, oh, <laughs> it, yeah. Your adrenaline is right there, but I suppose something kicks in, like broadcaster mode kicks in, and you just oh, sort yeah. of go a bit narrow, and you go right. I'm here to a job, you know. You can't. You're not looking at your notes anymore because you're calling the race, um, and you're just you're just yeah. keeping a track of the action. I call it the, and, the broadcast bubble that I have around. When I see well, people yeah, that's being, exactly it. Yeah, when I see like I have a guest and they're nervous in studio, and I say, "Don't worry, you're in the broadcast bubble. Your your wife's not giving you a hard time. The cat's not sick. <laughs> you're protected from the outside world." But despite your incredible CV already and my incredible jealousy, the one thing that I really wanted to talk to you about, um, and this might seem odd, is when you were a runner for for the bbc yeah. and you tweeted about yeah. it um you were finding drivers on the grid for jenny gow and alan mcnish to interview and that is just like it's one of the most magical seeming things on tv is that time where everyone's on the grid the engines are starting to fire up but it always looks like chaos on those those interviews please please tell me what it was like being a, a runner trying to interact with these drivers who presumably don't really know who you are as a media personality at the time, don't necessarily want to talk. Yeah, scary. It was very cold as well. It was back in 2016, I remember. Um, but it, it helped because I had a big jacket on that said BBC. <laughs> that so that helps, always yeah. it gets, you, gets you a little bit further across the line than somebody without one. Um, it, I, it, well, it was 2016, so I can't remember it exactly. But uh, I remember I'm, I'm quite tall. I'm six foot five. And what? the first thought I had was... God, drivers are small. Yeah. Like, everyone's like a jockey. And yeah. you, I could see the whole grid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Felipe Massa, I think, was there at the time. So we grabbed him quickly and he was really nice and up for a chat. And because it was the BBC, obviously, we've got the British angle. So I think, I don't think Lewis was on the scene, but Jensen, I think, came and had a chat because he was down in like 17th position for qualifying. So we start, I think we managed to grab him on his way to do the anthem. And we might have got Palmer as well at the time, but um, I, I think we did get Palmer at the time. Um, but also it's trying to find celebs as well. And, and and it's radio, so you don't have to worry about, you know, cameras or anything like that. But I remember doing my utmost to try and keep out the way of bloody Martin Brundle, who just gets everywhere. <laughs> and, you know, I had so many people send me screenshots of me in the background of Martin's gridwalk on Sky, which was kind <laughs> of a bit weird. Um and I think we got Anthony Joshua. We had a chat with Anthony Joshua, uh, the boxer. And I did the most embarrassing ever. He, he he seemed like a really nice bloke. And Jenny had just finished chatting to him. And he went, oh, cheers. Cheers, guys. And Jenny sort of then made to go away. And then he said, oh, thanks, mate. And I, I went in uh, with like, he he sort of made to to put a handshake, I thought. So I went in with the hand yeah. open for a handshake. And he then went in with the fist bump no. and did 
very nearly did the whole wrap around uh, and just about avoided it with some weird sort of side kind of knuckle thing yeah. and i just remember oh, cheers mate <laughs> walking away thinking oh my god that was anthony joshua and i've just sort of weirdly <laughs> sort of fist bumped him yeah so, so that was a bit weird yeah so tell me how but it, it was an amazing so, experience i because I, I, I watch the, the sky coverage and you see martin brundle on there and and people either don't want to talk to him or they have periods where they can't find someone uh, the mm. the grids are a lot busier now, obviously as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming you've got a producer running around, or was it like down to you to to locate someone to talk to? No, the producer in that case, uh, and still is the case, was up in the commentary box. Um, wow. I, I, I I imagine Sky do have one, and they probably got a couple of people on the ground. And also, you can pre agree with PR teams to say, can we grab on the grid for five minutes? You know, um, so there can be some pre agreements, uh, but for the five live it was very much a grab somebody and go the good the beneficial thing about the radio coverage is that you know they can't see you just wandering around filling for time you know and we had alan mcdish there so jenny's there describing the scene obviously and and making really in depth and you know the commentary are getting involved as well it's a very different broadcast style actually to what you see on the tv which is what i love about doing it it's so different to tv um so so that was the kind of case there and then mm. and then you've got to clear the grid fairly quickly you know you've got to get out the way and get <laughs> out of there and don't you know i was so petrified about bumping into somebody or a driver or stepping on a front wing and breaking something <laughs> getting out of the way of a car uh, and i just felt like oh god i need to get out of the way and you know so big like a big guy I was just trying to just just keep alive um and then before you all knew it, it was over really obviously managed to get a good selfie um back in the day no beard and massive sunglasses on my face but um it, it was a, a hell of an experience for me and and uh one i'm very grateful for for the that team allowing me you know yeah. it's the bbc team but it, it's done by an independent production company which at the time was a company called usp and I'd, I'd been the intern there and they knew obviously i was an f1 fan and i got called on friday to be like can you come and uh and have a chat can you come and uh do be a runner for us this weekend which obviously i go yes i'm there 100 um so so it was everything i i could have possibly dreamed of i don't think i've been on the grid since funnily enough because if you're in commentary, you're, yeah. shoved in, you're shoved in the booth, hidden away. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, you are. Yeah, the, that company, I just remember I actually, um, a couple of years after that, I had an interview to take over the producer role. I didn't get it. And the, guy, uh... the guy said to me, he goes, no, I think you're going to try and muscle in and do presenting. He says, it's not a good fit for you. And I went, oh, okay. There you go. Bit of internal gossip. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm aware. <laughs> Although I did manage to surprise uh, Jack Nichols by sending him a, f- a selfie of me sat in his commentary chair. He said, what, what the Ooh, hell? I bet he loved that. How have you got in yeah. there? Yeah, I think he thought I was, I was stalking him at his place of work. Uh, but so well, I'll tell, <laughs> tell you what, just that was when I did my first ever bit of commentary, not live on air, but it was the GP2 race on the uh, Sunday or the Saturday. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the Saturday. And uh, the team were just milling about in the commentary box, not doing anything. And then the producer, Chesy at the time, just said, Jump on, Harry. Have a go. It's not. We're not live, but just just try commentating on it. I was god awful, so bad. I didn't like it. Was I knew I knew the GP GP two drivers were, but commentary was just so <laughs> difficult. I was like, how can anybody do this? Well, uh, Ed Sheeran shared on uh, I think Graham Norton or something like that. He shared videos of him playing early on, and he said, "Look, that is not someone with like a god given natural talent." That's where I started, and then I worked at it, and then mm. I brought myself up to to this level. But look, I know you think of yourself as a present, presenter, commentator, a useful idiot, and that you've got other experts around you. But by osmosis, I think you probably do know your thing. 
Uh, you know your stuff when it comes to F1. So I want, I want to get your takes. We, we took a long guess at the top of the grid, and um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people incorrectly saying Aston Martin a second and Mercedes at eighth or whatever. I really have no idea where that's coming from, but I've, I've yeah. screenshotted all the tweets. I've got the receipts for when you try and pretend that you didn't say Aston Martin were going to be championship contenders. Not you personally, Harry. Same to everyone. Um, But we never really looked at the bottom of the grid. So I thought I'd get your opinion on who you think are the bottom three teams in Formula One based on testing, testing guesses, and and why. Have you got a hot take? I think AlphaTauri are last. Um, That's really, that's big. Yeah, I just don't think we saw anything. They put in some good lap times over testing, but they had a bad year right last year and they just didn't have a great car. And the development rate wasn't very good. I don't think they've made that much of a of an inroad this year. Or maybe they have, but in in comparison to the other teams, it's not enough. And I think, you know, I, I rate their driver lineup. I think you it's a make mm. or break year for Yuki, but I think if he can keep it together, it will be fine. Nick DeVries, as we know, is hot property. Uh I think thank God for Nick DeVries, because although he is a, a rookie in quotation marks, um, he brings so much experience that he can bring to the team. But I think the loss of Pierre Gasly will be massive for them in terms of looking at a development direction and how to improve the team. And over testing, I think we saw a lot of their t- like high, their uh, low fuel running times. I don't think uh, we saw many uh, on high fuel, which which is when, as we all know, that's really the time mm. you want. You know, Anyone can set a fast lap time with no fuel in the car. And I think that's, that's be, <clears throat> yeah. I think I, I think Aston will be up there. I think they'll be top of midfield. <laughs> right. But um, I think bottom will be Alpha Tauri is is my hot take um, on that. I I I don't know. And then I think in in the mix, I think Williams have made a step up by the looks of things. I still think they'll be towards the back, but I think they will be clinging, you know, onto the Hasses and the Alpha Romeos, sort of on their coattails. Mm. With Alex Albon putting in some great drives on top of that. So uh, so both those teams you've mentioned there are in a position yeah. where we don't really know where that driver lineup is going gonna, is gonna to put them. So mm. if you remember Williams a few years back coming out of the hybrid era, they found themselves with Sorokin and Stroll at one point. Yeah. And, it's, and it's not today's Stroll that you could well argue is a kind of a consistent midfield runner, useful number two. It was, you know, a very raw Lance Stroll, and I don't think many people really rated Sorokin either. And you wondered, like, that car was going out in Q1, race after race. You go, was that really only a Q1 car? You you don't know. So if you've got Sonoda and he's not firing, and if Freeze doesn't quite settle in, they could have a close battle between them. But it's always funny with these teams, and you go, well, how much is there on the table? A, in pure pace. And, and and be in development as well, you go, well, that's, that could be damaging for a team that is being reportedly told, you know, to improve or be sold. Well, yeah, I, I agree with you. But I think, I think Yuki is, I came into Formula One with a bit of a hype around him. And then that, that, that kind of became a little bit undone. Mm. And then, but then I think it went the opposite way. And I think he was a bit underrated. Like I think people, a lot, I know the Abu Dhabi 2021 finale is obviously talked about for other reasons, but let's not forget, Yuki came fourth <laughs> right I, behind I that battle. had forgotten that completely. Yeah. Wow. Yuki yeah. came fourth and, and, and last year the car wasn't great. And towards the back end, he was either matching Pierre Gasly or out qualifying him. 
And I think that went under the radar slightly. And Yuki, I recently spoke to his now performance engineer, Michael Italiano, who used to be Daniel Ricardo's. And Michael was saying, Yuki now loves, you know, he's he's got his mindset right. He loves exercising and training. It's all he cares about what he's doing the day. He's eating well. <laughs> yeah. He's moved to to Italy to be close to the to the team. So I think he's it's, make, it's all the right noises are coming out there. And then we heard over the course of testing that Nick DeVries has come in and shaken things up for how Fianza do things in their factory. And Franz Tost has been saying, you know, he's made us rethink how we do some things and how we operate. So I think actually together, it could be quite a fiery lineup. It's it's a kind of, I think somebody said this over the course of testing as well. It's a bit of a lose-lose situation for those drivers. Yeah. Because if Yuki does great, then, you know, Nick DeVries has is, more is experience. A, he's a rookie, uh, so you just yeah. go, yeah, yeah. But if Nick DeVries beats Yuki, then Yuki's been going to be shown the door, right? Because he's been tra- chanced by mm. by somebody who who is brand new to that team, at least, and has much less F1 experience. So mm. it, it, there's no outright winner here, I don't think. It, it's going to be a bit of a, a, a lose-lose. But I, I think, write them off at your peril. I think they're both hungry, and, and the Red Bull pressure, I think, you know, um, does does you know put a bit of fire into well, you, you you just put them last and then you're telling me not to write them off no Which i think they'll, they'll be battling for you know p19 and p18 ferociously <laughs> make sure you watch that battle oh I see. um i'm with but, you, I'm you know, with the you. thing is I, I you put them last but i actually do think it's going to be really tight in the in that midfield i think i think it's going to be uh, you know it could be, could well be an alfa romeo plum last at one point but it could be as fast as the has that's in sixth because there's been some retirements or whatnot mm. But that's that's going to be the name of the game this year. I think it's going to be how do you um, how do you get in front in qualifying? How can you stay there? And can you make use of any reliability issues? Although we've not seen that many in testing, but no, who knows? I haven't actually. So I think I think it's going to be tight, which I think is going to be great for Formula One in general. I worry about McLaren; they don't look great, um, and I worry uh, they're going to be battling with the Alpha Tauris a little bit and the Williamses. Alpine are a bit of an unknown, don't know about them, but Mm. McLaren is more obviously towards the back. And and so I say McLaren, Williams and AlphaTauri are my teams. For the bottom three. You can include McLaren in there. And I would disagree with you if it wasn't just for how glum Lando Norris looks and how like snappy he looks in the interviews and things. And you go, they are they are not happy. You know, he's looking at his contract probably now for loopholes and wondering if Audi can't just hurry up a little bit and, and get into Formula One. He didn't he didn't look pleased at all. And, and McLaren look like they've they've kind of made a habit of wrecking drivers' careers at the moment. I hate to be like harsh, but like think of the, the end of Button's career, a big chunk of Alonso's comeback that was supposed to be Ricardo. What the hell happened there? And what, then Stoffel Van Dorn. Stoffel Van Dorn. And then it's just it now I, I if you are Lando Norris, you're starting to go, oh I'm gonna be an old maid at some point here all his mates have had shots in top cars and it's it's mm. just not happening for him if i'm lando norris and i, I said this uh at the start of this year i'm if and i'm delivered another bad year this mm. season i'm i'm on the phone to my old team principal andreas seidel and i'm going what's the stitch with audi can i join uh, and and that's 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 where i'm going because realistically i don't think there's many other options that are going to bring him what mm. he wants which is wins and championships and Ricardo's probably sat at home after that testing and gone because he'd have, he'd have been really gutted and sad, wouldn't he? That he was being shown the door and he's probably had a difficult winter trying to reinvent himself, throw himself into his new role, and then watch testing and gone, yeah, that's that's okay, I'm all, I'm all right. 
how do you think Oscar's feeling though? He's, you know, if Alpine proved to be a fourth best team again, and he's he's gone to McLaren, yeah, ah, it's difficult, difficult, tricky timing. Although I, I I read a lot into what Oscar Piastri was saying recently, how it's important to be wanted by a team, and I do think that goes a long way. It did kind of Alpine, I think, made it out as if. They they put him in the car because Alonso left them and, and Oscar was there, so we may as well use him. That's the kind of vibe they gave <laughs> off. And if I'm Oscar, I'm a bit like, well, McLaren really wanted me, so I'm going to go there. Yeah, you want to be shown. You want to be shown love, don't you? It's not, yeah, and money. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what the money and money is. But uh, yeah, so so if we're in our top, what, what was the other team you mentioned there? Williams again. They're they're so they're, Williams. Yeah, yeah. They're a lineup though where I've I've never had my my fan. Uh, my fan spirit tickled by Alex Albon. I've never really seen what is the result where people are really gunning for him and think he's a, a top, top driver. And then obviously with Sargent, we don't know anything about him. Mm. But, you know, when my when a billionaire enters F1, I kind of go, oh, okay, great. Like the bar for me to be impressed by a billionaire is a little higher. No offense if you're secretly a billionaire, Harry. I didn't ask. I no, didn't check. sadly not. No, um, no. Uh, so... You go, you go, well, maybe that's not in the top four or five driver pairings in, in F1 as well. And for Williams, you go, oh, maybe they could have been a, a bit more ambitious in their driver lineup. Um, well, who would you have gone for? Huh? Uh, who would F- you have gone for? Uh, Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, first. Well, there you go. Uh, like, yeah. That's a good question. Who, who was available? Well, I mean, the likes of. Uh, Piastri, either were there not better rookies that Schum- could come I, in? I, to be fair, I heard Schumacher yeah. maybe was on the cards um, with with Jost Capito, but then obviously Jost left. Um, I, I think Alex has rebuilt himself, much like Pierre did after oh, being yeah. ousted by Red Bull. I think Alex did uh, has learned probably quite a lot from being a reserve driver at Red Bull and watching Max Verstappen from the sidelines. I think he would have gained a lot from that alongside sort of being in the DTM team because Alex was good when he came into Alpha Tauri, Rosso slash Alpha Tauri before he got prematurely promoted. Like he was good. Um, had a setback, much like Pierre re- is rebuilding. And, and well, I mean, I know he was up against Latifi last year, but yes, yes. Uh, but I think Alex is, is, is a good driver. Um, Logan Sargent, we have no idea. You know, he had some decent F2 performances, but didn't win the championship. So you argue, well, why is the sixth place guy from Formula Two last year in Williams and Felipe Drogovic isn't the champion. You know, what's but there's something that's been inherently wrong with the system for some time now. Yeah. So, but, so but could, could they not have got a Drogovic? Well, I, I Drogovic maybe didn't have as much money as Sargent, and also now he's tied up with the Aston Martin development yeah. uh, scheme, isn't he? Um, so I'm sure there must have been conversations that took place, but uh, Logan had joined the Williams Academy, you know, what, two years ago, hadn't he? So they kind of put money mm. into him, backing him through F3 and F2. So there's a bit of a, well, we need to see our money sort of pay in dividends here. So I think that's maybe the route. I, I, I'm I'm excited by by the lineup. I, I think, it, uh, you know, we can speculate for all we like. I think Alex will achieve the maximum of that car. Logan will probably make some rookie mistakes, but, you know, we didn't, he looked very capable in testing. All the yeah. rookies did. And I think together they might they might be quite a good pairing this year. So I'm going to now do a bit of gatekeeping whilst talking to uh-huh. a current F1 commentator, right? Okay, so whilst <laughs> understanding well, that, that what I'm about to do is ridiculous. Like, okay, so how we view Williams is probably very different. So like, I'm 42, you are like 20... Uh, 25. 25, ugh. 
jealous. I'm 26 in two weeks. Yeah, good, helps. good. Yeah, 26 is kind of yeah. You you are fading and losing the magic of youth. So that that pleases me. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, the fact that Williams are we're even talking about whether they might be ninth or or maybe even eighth mm. and hanging on to the tails of the back of the midfield. To me, that's a championship winning team. That is Mansell. That is Ayrton Senna. You know, that's Prost. And to to hear these kind of decisions they make with drivers is is really sad for me so when like when they had Sorokin and Stroll to me that team seemed to kind of of the entity the spirit of my Williams seemed to uh, sort of fall away but I really do want them to be the team that can go out and get you know the real talent on the grid and not have to think about what how much money that brings in and and it says to me if they're still bringing in what is a let's let's call it what it is they're bringing in a paid driver that if they're still in that position perhaps the ambition isn't to drive forward as much as this 80s kid wants them to. Yeah, I get it. I completely get it. I, I have a whole thing where, you know, not everybody's a pay driver, in my opinion. So, you know, money's got to come from somewhere, right? And, you know, if you've got a rich dad, then great. Uh, or if you're Lewis Hamilton, link up with a team. Obviously, the money sounds better if it's coming from a from a team. Yeah, I'll fight back on Go that on. slightly because I'll say that uh, to me, if you're a pay driver, if the money comes because of who you are, Whereas if the money comes because of what you can do, I don't, I don't personally class that as a pay driver. So I think I need a different term. I try to use the term buy-in driver, and I should have used that. Okay. Well, how do you look at Lando Norris? Uh, yeah, and that's a really, really interesting one because not a lot of people pick up on the fact that he, he bought in for his first seat in his first year of Formula One and did come in as a, as a buy-in driver, but was also hyped up as a genuine talent and one of the most prepared young F1 drivers to enter the sport. And then he got to a point where McLaren, he now, he takes a salary. He's not a buy-in driver anymore. So uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting one. You could argue then, was Lando Norris the best ever buy-in driver? And I'm sure people <laughs> will say... Well, look, I mean, Lando Norris was, was very well prepared because um, he was able to afford to go testing when others couldn't in junior formula. And he had a father who could buy him loads of new tyres and he could just keep pounding in the laps with new tyres. And arguably, the more testing you do, the better you get. So it's really difficult to, mm. to argue with a factor. That's why when, when you know you bring up Sergei Sorokin or people like that, you know, I agree that era of Williams the personality probably really kind of was sucked out of the team um but I try I and maybe this is the broadcaster in me because you know I was a fan and I am still a fan but I I don't get attached to it I'll always be attached to one driver in particular but he's not an F1 so it's fine but it oh Kobayashi it, like I, me. yeah yeah Oh uh, yeah, yeah, Paul DeResta. Um, but he is very controversial. Uh, but he, uh, he, so Rockin, I think, and people like that. I, I, I think it's you can't judge. Like it's a rich, it's a rich man's sport, unfortunately, and it always has been. Let's not kid about that. And I, I don't judge. And you know, if they perform well, then suddenly yes. you forget they're a yeah, pay driver, right. don't you're you? Right. you yeah, know, and, and like that's, that. that's and the... if they've got a good personality like Lando, you forget they're buy-in driver, as you say. Buy-in driver. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll work on the the phrasing. But yeah, so at every level, every driver was a buy-in driver at some point. So Lewis Hamilton buying yeah. his own go karts at that level was a, a buy-in driver, and that would have put him beyond certainly like my my circumstances as a kid. We wouldn't have been able to jump up to that. So yeah, there's a scale of how high are you going to buy in or can you buy in until you can convince someone ultimately to to pay you to do it? And the the best example of that is Lando Norris having to go all the way to F1 and then getting picked up for a drive because a lot of the buy-in totally. drivers fall away 
after a few years or after a couple of years. Exactly. And yeah. maybe with the exception of, I mean, Lance Stroll is a really interesting case because he has proven that he can be on pole positions, he can get podiums and he can score points. But unfortunately, the fact that his dad bought a team for him and will and he will race there for the rest of his career until his dad leaves or until Lando decides he can't be asked to do it anymore. Uh, that uh, is a unique Lance, situation, Lance. I think. Lance. Oh, Lance we, we, we mixed Lance. up our billionaires there, didn't we? I, oh, <laughs> until Lance, until Lance, yes, until mm-hmm. Lance decides that he doesn't want to do it anymore. That so that's a really unique uh, it is. It, situation, and it just shows with unprecedented and uh, unlimited funds and practice and resources, you can get to the point where you can be like like pretty good, like in the scale of all F one drivers that have existed. You know, he's pretty high on his general ability. And I, I think there would be a case if you were a, a, a new team coming in and you were looking around the driver market, you had your, say, your your young gun, your, your Alex Albon or whatever, your Pierre Gasly, that's a better example, that you wanted to drive the team forward. I think there's a, there's a case you could go, right, Stroll is a consistent marker. We know his ability, bring him in. He, know, he can be a useful driver to the team. So like for him to come from where he was to that is good. But no mm. other driver in history would have had the time, resources, and uh, and space to be able to get to that level. But totally, mm. and I, it's a fascinating subject that it you is. can debate yeah. until the cows come home, really, and and will be continued to be debated throughout the years until, you know, uh, you, uh, what, I mean, Nico Rosberg, you know, his where did his money come from? You know, he grew up in Monaco. His dad was obviously a Formula One driver, but he was he became a champion. So yeah, you just. It's really difficult to gauge it. I just think don't judge until they've performed on track. Simple as. Okay. Do you know what? We've been very, it's been very nice to meet you, Harry, and we've had a very. <laughs> but that's we, enough. We've yeah. had a ch- no, <laughs> Yeah, but get out of my shed. But I don't know. We've yeah. been quite, uh, we've been reasonably polite. We're getting to know each other here. I think you and me could have a really good row at some point if we, if we yeah, let the probably. gloves off. So you are welcome back into the shed to tell me <laughs> when I'm wrong uh, on any subject, anytime. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, mate. Oh, where can people go and follow you and stuff? We need to hype up your Ooh, Twitter account. Absolutely. Your Instagram uh, I'm on and, all of it. and Twitter, you... Instagram. I'm a TikToker. Are you? Um, now? I do I do TikToks. Yeah. It's uh, I'm at it's at I'm Harry Benjamin. I am Harry Benjamin on, on pretty much everything. So uh so find me there on, on all the various things. Oh and, yeah. Uh, I am I am Harry Benjamin on I know, Twitter. I couldn't have I am, so I went for I'm <laughs> And so what we'll like do Harry Benjamin. is we'll have all the links to your social media in the show notes so that our viewers and listeners can awesome. go and find you as I think we, as I think everyone should. And I look forward to seeing you on the, the feeder series commentary. Uh, I believe you're doing uh, quite a lot of races this season. So we won't, we won't be sure of hearing a Benjamin voice. No, I'll be popping up on all sorts of various things. So uh, forgive me in advance for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Harry Benjamin. Cheers, mate. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, Netflix dropped its fifth season of Hit F1 series, Drive to Survive, and both myself and a panel of DTS fans are going to sit down and take a look at some of the insights and stories that emerged from the series. I'm your host, Jonathan Simon, but my friends call me Jonathan Simon, and we've assembled a panel of expert fans to help me out, starting with Matt Trumpets. Matt, how's it going? I applaud your mediocre effort at my name. <laughs> and uh, sleep. Who needs sleep with Netflix? Well, you, Matt, binge Drive to Survive with the wife this time. Uh, yeah, I did. So it didn't really just turn into an all-nighter because she goes to bed at like nine o'clock, but... You'll probably find that out later. And PR guru Chris Stevens also joins us. Chris, how's it going? Yeah, hey, John, I'm doing good. I've uh, finally uh, recovered after losing an entire weekend to binging a Netflix show. Nothing new, nothing new. Um, how did you find this series? It seemed to be one of your favorites. Yeah, I've, I've already said this on the on the show on Sunday, and I've tweeted about it as well. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I thought it was one of the best, uh, if not the best, series they've done. Yes, yes. And of course, expert sim racer and streamer Scott Stuffy. Tuffy returns to the podcast. What's been happening, Scott? Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, like the others, binge watched with the missus Netflix Drive to Survive over the weekend. Yes, getting hyped for the new season ahead. Well, that's another one because I can also say I also binge watched the series with the missus too. So let's take a look at some of the news and stories emerging from Drive to Survive. So there were a lot of stories that came out of Drive to Survive this year. One of the most fascinating ones was, of course, the old team principal battle, Toto Wolf versus Christian Horner. And then you throw in Mattia Bonotto in there too, just add a little bit of salt and pepper and spice to the action. The biggest story behind this, well, there were two. You start with not only the porpoising, but the cost cap as well. And that's where these three team principles pounced. About the porpoising, and that was the first one that came out in the series, there was a nice little, uh, I don't want to say nice, but it was a very, very heated discussion, a big team uh, owners meeting where Toto Wolf is sort of being, I don't want to say gaslighted, but sort of ganged up on between Christian Horner and Mattia Bonotto. Um, Who do we start with with this, Matt? The... You seem to agree with Horner and Bonotto on, on the porpoising side where Mercedes were struggling with the bouncing. Toto's basically saying, look, the rules, the rules are, are terrible. They need to be changed. Whereas the other two team bosses are going, well, mate, you've stuffed up with your car. You need to change it. 
Uh, yeah, and I just want to say for our listeners, heated is the word we use when we can't use stronger words because we are safe for work. Um, I agreed with them in this very, very strict context of the conversation because Wolf was saying, oh, what if our car crashes because blah, blah, blah. And they basically made the point, well, look, it's your car. You should probably change it so that it doesn't crash. But I feel like there was definitely a lot of missing context to this discussion. So uh, while I agreed with Horner in the immediacy of that scene, and I think he was absolutely correct, there's a wider context to it that I think gives a lot of weight to where Wolf was coming from. Chris? I live for moments like this. These little fly-on-the-wall moments of the series are what make Drive to Survive viewable for fans like us who have been watching it for a very long time. And the two incidents that we're talking about here, the porpoising and the cost cap, just goes to show, for me anyway, that a team principal, no matter what their previous history, will always play the victim when things are against them and tell everyone it's their own problem when when they've got it sorted. They will happily play both sides of the coin, and that's exactly what Christian Horner did when he was saying, that's your problem with the porpoising and suddenly playing the victim when it came to the cost cap. And, and that's exactly what I thought as well, was, was both sides in this situation I felt were correct. So you had Toto going, well, look, this is dangerous and the rules need to be changed. But at the same time, every other team managed to avoid the porpoising dilemma. And this is the situation, Scott, where the cars, one, one side of the cars were, were bouncing a lot. You've had Lewis Hamilton and George Russell saying, hey, I've got back issues at Azerbaijan. And the other team is going, well, we're porpoising, but we're quick. And you guys suck. And you guys have won the last however many championships for seven years. We're just going to see you suffer and, and basically throw salt on the wound. Most definitely. And Mercedes are quite clearly the worst car for porpoising last year. And Toto was going to try everything that he could to gain as much of an advantage that he could in regards to hopefully getting the regulations changed. But what I thought was brilliant was Christian Horner asking, is this for the cameras? Do we need to do this in front of them? He knew exactly what he was saying and he wanted every single moment of that captured on camera because that was his his moment to shine. And even Gunther got in and ganged up upon on Toto, which he, I don't think we've seen too much of in any season of Drive to Survive. Nah. Well, I think his is this for the cameras is exactly, as you said, what he wanted because this is, he excels in that kind of immediate witty repartee put down contest. I mean, that's that's like his wheelhouse. But for context, I mean, I know you say that uh, Mercedes, the other teams had not solved porpoising at all. If you looked at the Ferraris, particularly in the braking zone, it was terrifying, even though they seemed to be able to manage it. The point, the Wolf's larger point, which I do believe was absolutely correct, was that like, look, we need to protect the drivers from these kinds of forces. And it's long been a thing in Formula One. I mean, we can go all the way back to the active suspension on, on the Williams. On the Lotus, when they put active suspension on, they were concerned with the driver's ability to drive. Williams was like, oh, the drivers are paid to take this punishment. All we care about is making cargo fast. And I think that's the point Wolf was making. Like, we need to put limits in to protect the drivers, because if we don't, then 
then they will get in anything and try and drive it fast. Chris, obviously, active suspension was a little bit before our time in Formula One. We're still avid fans, so we kind of know all about that. That was in the early 90s, but the the it is a very similar situation in, in, in this one. The thing I found fascinating was how how heated these sort of team principal, what do you call them, meetings go on with the FIA and, and how intriguing it was to step in. And we've had this in the past where they'll put a camera in a driver's briefing meeting, and it's one of the most fascinating two, three minutes out there on YouTube. Yeah, they did it on the F1 channel for a while, didn't they? Which I thought was... Uh, fantastic and yeah more peaks behind the curtain like that but it could you know talking about is is toto playing up to the cameras or christian playing up to the cameras by asking toto if he's playing up to the cameras of course the irony is they're both playing up to the cameras they're both taking advantage of this opportunity that they know this is going to get broadcast to millions of people so they're both playing on that uh on that role uh but coming from de- very different sides obviously I thought what was quite intriguing about that meeting as well is that Stefano, Stefano Domenicali and I can't remember who was sitting to his um, to his right, but he was like a head teacher. He scolded Gunther Steiner for talking and to basically be quiet, and they all did. And he it was very interesting to see the team principals in that position because we don't. And then, of course, the following conversation was like a a bunch of kids having a disagreement in secondary school. Uh, but yeah, Toto obviously got very irate and very defensive, even threatening to go after team principals. Um, if, of course, there was suppo- if there was going to be a crash due to porpoising, trying every, uh, every ammunition that he had. Well, of course, the, contextually to this conversation, porpoising was still an issue on a number of cars. It wasn't just the Mercedes at this point, um, but it didn't seem to be a major issue on a lot of the other cars. Like no one else was complaining about back problems or it being a safety concern. And maybe that is an extreme angle that Mercedes took to try and get the regs uh, changed and to play in their favor a little bit. And, and and Matt, along with that too, I mean, yeah, Mercedes did suffer the worst and they seem to be the most public about their issues with the car. And and that's why Toto's come in and gone, hey, look, we, we need to stick up for ourselves and, and become com- competitive again. Do you think it was true where Toto's gone, this is a safety issue, we need to change it? Or do you think he's sort of trying to convince people to change the rules to make Mercedes quick again? That's another good context there. I think the answer to your question is yes. So is there a legitimate safety concern? Well, um, I would say that I think that there is and that we know that there is not because any particular rule was changed, but because the FIA have developed a, a sensor to measure this angular momentum and set a limit for drivers. And so the parallel I want to draw is to, say, the NFL, National Football League over here in America, where after years of playing football, they're finding these neurological problems that they think are caused by these impacts. These impacts can be essentially rated as a certain amount of G against your head. So if you're a driver bouncing up and down, you have a lot of, you're bouncing your brain up and down. So yeah, there's a potential that there's a long-term health impact on drivers here, and it's worthy of being studied, and it's worthy of being limited in the interest of protecting driver safety. That said, it's also very convenient for Mercedes that any fix to this problem, 
or any limit to this problem is probably going to help them more relative to their rivals than it will help their rivals themselves. And on that front, it came to the cost cap dilemma where you switch the sides of who's playing victim now. Mercedes no longer the victims in this one. Were they were the victims Red Bull or were they the perpetrators? That's the next question there. The cost cap dilemma we had was we, we got a lot of insight into sort of how public a lot of the teams were. Um, this is this is back in the real world before Drive to Survive. You had Zach Brown's letter, you had Toto Wolf being unashamedly accusing Red Bull of, of of doing this and doing that over the budget to try and get themselves a championship. But um, who wants to go with this one? Uh, Chris, I'll go with you first. So this is a situation where Red Bull have exceeded the cost cap by what was it, like 400,000 or a few million. And at the end of the day, Christian Horner this time was playing the victim going, hey, look, it's only a small amount of money. It's not going to make that big of a difference. Well, that was a very intriguing insight to see how passionate he was about being uh, about making himself a victim in this one. Yeah, because they doubled down on the idea that they'd done absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever, even though it was very much proven that they had. And it astounded me that Christian Horner came across that he was surprised that that was they got a negative reaction about that and that they were not a popular team for breaking the cost cap as if we're going to turn around and say oh it's okay red bull what's 400 grand between friends you you go along it will be absolutely fine and for him to then hide as well behind the language that he was using which was very very carefully chosen we did not cheat i.e. because we didn't do it deliberately. We didn't do it deliberately. Does not matter. And then to also play the, the mental health card as well. As a, as a, oh, stop bullying us, you're being really mean. They're like, oh my God, I thought the whole thing was just a bit pathetic. And I think that's also been exampled by, we said we've watched it with our partners, and my girlfriend was sitting there going, why is he playing the victim when he's broken the rules and he's the only team to have broken the rules? And I was just sitting there shaking my head because this is exactly the same thing I've said throughout the season when this was all announced. But it was very intriguing to see how much of the victim he was still playing behind closed doors. He really didn't see that he had done something wrong. And you could see how much he was sweating, even approaching Mattia Bonotto on the Singapore Grand Prix grid. Of course, this was before I think it was officially announced they'd breached the cost cap. But he was clearly very paranoid and very upset with these rumours. But he must have known that they were very close to the cost cap limit. Yeah, I actually quite enjoyed that as well when you went to the grid and Matias said, well, look, I didn't mention your team specifically. I said any team. So if you want to play the the victim there, maybe you're guilty. And that was a very, very savage sort of mental game that Matias Bonotto was playing. And and Matt, obviously, you know, mental health in this situation, of course, Horn has said, look, like this is this has affected us and everything. We still have to take him seriously in that context, too. Yeah, no, I mean, mental health is absolutely no joke, especially in the post-COVID era. However, using mental health as a shield against your wrongdoing is also like just like 
not really on, to borrow a British phrase. My wife picked up on his language straight away. She was like, oh. And and I, I use her because it was fun to watch with someone who wasn't as devoted to the utter minutia of Formula One as I am. And she absolutely despised him playing victim. And, the, and I agree, the funny thing to me is n- not that they did this, because I think, frankly, Aston Martin did it. Williams messed it up, too. They, they were not the only ones to, to dance around the edges of this regulation. But the simple fact that, um, and I, I think it was the Otmar uh, quote said, like, yeah, look, if we're half a millimeter off in the technical regulations, our car gets disqualified. Aston Martin in Hungary two years ago, they didn't have quite enough fuel disqualified. They finished in second place. So if you spend too much money, whether intentionally or not, there is a penalty that should follow. It's just very basic. But the fact that they played the victim just, it it was like the Streisand effect. It just poured immense amounts of fuel onto that fire, where if they stood up and said, look, you know what? It's possible we made a mistake here. We didn't intend to do this. We're going to talk to the FIA. We're going to look at what happened. We're going to make sure this never happens again. Everybody would have been like, eh, well, whatever. And of course, you know, the TV sort of producers will pick a certain angle to go with on all this. So that's also sort of doesn't help Horner's uh, context in this kind of sense and and kind of his his sort of perception on this whole dilemma and, and how we perceive him. But the thing I've noticed the most coming out of Drive to Survive, right, Scott, is there's one, there's a couple people in F1 who have big obsessions. Number one has got to be Nico Rosberg. If you have a big bingo card of five Lewis Hamiltons in a row, you would cross that off in the first five conversations you have with him. Second most I've noticed is Christian Horner. He seems to go after Mercedes, Scott, almost every single time he's on the show. And he seems to have this kind of obsession to attack them in the media. And and Max is the same. And it brings memories of that 2021 battle back in the past where they were doing the same and Mercedes were kind of trying to shrug it off. Yeah, there was a there was a scene um, that I think kind of got glossed over. It was only a few seconds where Christian Horner was talking to Max in the pit box and he went over and discussed with Max about these rumours, this was at the Singapore Grand Prix, about these rumours that they'd supposedly broken the cost cap and was blaming Mercedes and Toto Wolff for it. Now, it's like he was seeking validation from Max and Max said, oh, it's just them trying to discredit us for last year, doing whatever they can. But yeah, pretty much every opportunity, he's, he likes to mention that they dominated the sport for seven odd years, eight years. And to be honest, if I was Toto Wolf, I'd be saying thank you to Christian Horner because you're just going to keep reminding everyone how good we were for eight years. Well, on that on that front as well, you can put yourself in Red Bull's shoes and, and kind of understand where they're coming from on all this. You go, hey, look, we've won a championship. Don't take it away from us. What's what's four hundred grand going to do in this in this situation? And to be honest, they can sort of be correct as well if you think about it. You know, it's not that big of a difference. The fascination I found from from the whole uh, sort of what came out of Drive to Survive was, and and who I really respect a lot after this is Zach Brown. And with him talking about the letter he sent to sort of the FIA, I think it was to the FIA or was it to the teams or it was an official letter of sort of saying, hey, look, once you cross the line, this is against the rules. And And, and Scott, on that one, Zach Brown was very well spoken and explained, hey, look, this isn't personal. I don't, I don't hate... Christian I don't 
um, hate Red Bull. I don't want to, you know, do anything like that. But also, we need to stick up for ourselves and the rules because the cost cap needs to be adhered to. This is this is for the success of the future of the sport. Yeah, I think the exact words he used. It was essential for the integrity of the sport, and I think most like-minded fans are of that same mind as well. And he made a quote about Christian Horner, which I think summed him up quite aptly. He can dish it out, but he can't take it. And that's kind of what I took from this particular cost cap episode. Anyone anyone on that, Matt? Well, yeah, I, I would agree with that. The thing that fascinates me most is in the arguing for a little or no penalty is how much, and again, I'm going to reference watching with my wife. She was... You know, because we had our conversations about what a correct penalty would be. The FIA made their decision. My wife was like, they shouldn't have a constructor's championship. They spent too much money. There's no way they should be eligible for that if they spent too much money, period, end of. And I was, well, kind of surprised, actually, that 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 was her take. And I'm just curious where everybody else came down on that after seeing him in this context. Well, it wasn't the only sense of drama in the paddock, of course. Let's go down the grid a little bit. And let's speak about Alpine, because they had a couple of drivers set in stone, Fernando Alonso, Esteban Ocon. They had El Plan or whatever it was. El, I, I can't even remember what it was called now. It's been so long ago for Fernando Alonso to win a world championship in that car. And then this whole domino effect happened. Sebastian Vettel retires. Alonso takes his seat at Aston Martin. And then it leads to... Oscar Piastri not signing with Alpine and moving to McLaren. Uh, The first thing I took out of this, uh, Chris, was Vettel's retired. And of course, Alonso stepped into his Aston Martin seat. We got some intriguing looks into the conversations surrounding that and how Fernando Alonso said, I think it was at Hungary, said, hey, look, I'm happy to talk. I need this contract soon. Next thing you know, Lawrence Stroll has offered up what seemed like the big bucks is what I took from that conversation. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And what that episode did for me was uh, reaffirm my uh, previous belief that Alpine really dropped the ball with the whole Alonso Piastri situation. And Otmar can keep going on about loyalty when it comes to Oscar Piastri, but the truth behind it was he was going to re-sign Fernando before he left. So what, what else was Oscar going to do? Uh, and for for me, yeah, it, it was all of Alpine's own doing. And that's a very good point as well, actually, when you think about it that way, is that, yeah, look, Alpine were looking to keep Alonso. They were, pro- were going to keep Ocon. He signed what was, like I think it's like a 15-year deal they signed him on. It was a very long 72. deal. <laughs> 70, yeah. It was a very, very long deal for Esteban Ocon. But then, so then what happens to Oscar, Matt? Where does he go? And so I, in, in the context of that and seeing that conversation of them trying to re-sign Alonso, I all of a sudden don't feel like Oscar did anything wrong in this situation. Well, you ask the rather pertinent question, what happens to Piastri if Alonso is signed? And the answer is he goes to Williams to replace George Russell, who's now at, oh, Mercedes. Here's what it is. Um, Either the timing of it, because the Alonso deal wasn't done and Alpine wanted Piastri for Alpine, if Alonso was going to bolt on them, which, given his history, was not an impossibility. I think he got impatient, looked at how McLaren was doing and said, oh, that looks like a great place to go drive a car. And and 
his lawyers looked at his lack of a contract and said, oh, geez, you know what? We, we could actually make that happen if you really want it. And I think that was probably the start of it. But yeah, he would have gone to Williams, done a season or two, and wound up at Alpine, had Alonzo stayed. And that really impressed me, though, about Otmar Zafnauer is, look, this new team boss who's come from the Force India days into the racing points, into the Aston Martin, has made the most out of an efficient budget. He's had this whole sort of reputation built around him where, look, he can take a midfield team and, and score a lot of points and be up there competing for, you know, the high end of the points, not potentially wins or podiums, but can do a lot with a small budget. He goes over to Aston Martin. And in this sense, he sort of left the team and he's brought in context to say, hey, look, this new owner, Lawrence Stroll, he's not he's not sort of easy to work with. It's a lot of pressure. And the, and the sort of insights they gave behind that, Chris, were sort of, hey, look, um, Lawrence Stroll is is not as easygoing as, as, as an owner that I wanted to work with. Yeah. And uh, I think that provides a lot of good context for Fernando's move and what he might have to deal with in his uh, with his new team this year. But it goes back to what we were saying earlier, wasn't it, about playing the victim. Otmar was playing the victim because his driver decided to go somewhere else because they weren't giving him uh, a race seat. Yes, there was potentially the option for him to go to Williams um, if there was no seat at Alpine, but was there, it was there any guarantee that that was going to to happen because we know that Williams had a few options on the board to partner uh, Albon after getting rid of Latifi. So... I, I don't think that Oscar did anything wrong. I didn't have the time, and I still don't think that, having heard a bit more from, from Otmar's perspective. And, and actually on that, Scott, is the fact that Piastri wasn't painted well in the media after all this drama. You know, it's it's somebody who's coming into the sport, trying to make a name for yourself, and now off track is sort of costing your reputation a lot. But in this sense, I feel like it's almost a little bit repaired. Yeah, I, and I think what, the Netflix show didn't um, show is the nuances in the contracts. Um, for most of us who, most of us who listen to this podcast, will probably know the details that happened with uh, Alpine and Piastri, and that there was um, complications and misunderstandings with contracts. That Netflix didn't display that, so I think that's why maybe it might have looked like that he come off as the baddie. But most of all, it just looked like overall misunderstanding from Otmar and and McLaren took advantage of that. Clearly, Mark Webber, although he was only in it for a short period, um, was labelled as Piastri's manager, clearly was doing work in the background to do what was best for his driver after they clearly was going to go for the Fernando Alonso route. But what was brilliant, I think, is there was, once again, just another little snippet that I picked up was that Fernando Alonso was walking down the um, walking down the pit lane and they went, what have you started um, in regards to silly season? And he went, not me, Sebastian Vettel. Well, that, that's actually true, Matt. If you think about it, like I said, Vettel started the domino effect with all this, with, the, with his retirement, and he caused a whole drama. And one of the best silly seasons I think we witnessed in Formula One for quite some time. Oh, yeah, it was delightful. It gave us so, so much to argue about. Uh, I do want to speak up briefly, briefly in defense of Otmar there. I mean, he was at Aston Martin until the start of this season. I'm fairly sure maybe you could ding him for not looking over the legal contracts that were supposed to have been signed. But I, I'm going to point at like whatever lawyers were actually in charge of that. 
as being as being a, a major provider of all this drama. That said, they did spend an awful lot on Piastri in the meantime, letting him drive old Formula One cars around circuits and giving him coaching and stuff like that. So I think their point that they invested a lot in him, and it's not a massive step to say, look, if we're going to give you a seat at Williams, just trust us. Well, once you've spent $4 million on me, I, I might be slightly more inclined to trust you. Although, to be fair, Formula One, it is a tank of piranhas. Not only that, but I, th- I think, for, yeah, well, that's a good way to put it, actually. Otmar Zafnauer is a very, like I said, he's an efficient team principal, an efficient team owner. So I was actually surprised uh, he wanted to bring Fernando Alonso back for another year, as, as good as a, a, of a talent as Fernando is. Um, Chris, it's never been sort of the guy that Otmar, I feel like, would go for. And I almost feel like now with the driver lineup he's got this year with, with Gasly and Ocon, it's almost better for the team and better for what Otmar wants out of a team. Maybe, maybe. But if, if Otmar wanted return on investment in Piastri, you should have given him a seat sooner. Because him already spending a year on the sidelines after winning Formula Renault, Formula 3 and Formula 2 titles in back-to-back years is an atrocity. He should have been in Formula 1 straight away. The idea that he was then going to get his entry-level seat after that as well is just, it's a bit of a slap in the face, really. And people accuse Drive to Survive of dramatizing things. Oh my goodness. He got loads of experience working with Alpine. He got drives in Formula One cars. He got coaching. It's like, yeah, it's nice when all the cards line up and your little champion can go and join Formula One immediately. But he would hardly be the first driver who had to sit out one or, if you're Nick DeVries, multiple seasons before you get your drive. And There is is a difference between Nick DeVries and Oscar Piastri. I am telling you, DeVries was not... Formula One ready when he won the F2 title. No one has had a junior career like Oscar Piastri has had. You don't just keep him on the sidelines for a year, and you certainly can't compare him to the other drivers that have had to sit on the sidelines for a year. No one, so you don't think Lewis Hamilton or or Max Verstappen's had a great junior career like like Oscar Piastri has? (laughs) I'm I'm saying no one had a great junior career, but no one has done what he did winning back to back to back to back titles like he did. That's true. That is very true. Even I think Lewis Hamilton took uh, two years of F3 to win that yes, title, then won GP2's first year, which I always say, and my fundamental rule, Scott, is if you can win GP2, or uh, sorry, Formula 2 now, which is it's called, if you can win that in your first season, I think you're a generational talent. And everyone's proved that, except Nico Hulkenberg. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Who knows? Maybe he'll get his first podium this year. Uh, but speaking of <laughs> drama and how truthful of a scenario this is um who knows uh, but we was discussing the conversations that uh, otmar and zach brown had uh, which is why i think i lot i gained a lot of respect for otmar um i have always not really thought too much of him to be honest uh, but how set up that conversation was I think Netflix did really well in capturing a load of candid conversations um, this season. And yeah, there was a couple of conversations captured between them regarding the Piastri scenario, um, vice versa, going into each other's um, homes, uh, mobile homes, uh, which I suppose takes a little bit of 
confidence to say the least but i thought that was very intriguing how put on it was who knows but it was yeah it was intriguing to see both of them go at it over the scenario and and max uh, not max um sorry um zach brown him actually firing back at otmar in regards to the fact of well this will be a pr disaster for you and don't try to drag us into this it was intriguing the team principal fights were certainly very intriguing in, in Drive to Survive. Uh, one thing I was very fascinated by was Zach Brown saying, hey, a driver swap is fair with, with Ricardo and uh, and Piastri. That's not fair at all. I don't know what he was talking about in that sense. Was it was it Ricardo and Piastri, I think? Uh, was it there, Matt? Yes, it was. Yeah. Um, those two. That is not fair at all. Come on, Zach. Do you really think that that was a good thing? Piastri's had one of the best junior careers of all time, which is what Chris said. No, I'm just kidding, Chris. It's all good. Um, one of the next big topics that we're going to go to is the Mick schumacher Haas relationship this was i don't want to say tumultuous but just not a good fit for either of the groups you look at Haas number one and they in this sort of context need a reliable driver an experienced driver who can score points they're a team who don't have much of a budget every single crash every single mistake costs them money you've got a frugal team boss of gunther steiner and maybe frugal is a bad way to put him because he has to work with the money that he's given and he doesn't have all the money in the world. And so he has to be like, hey, we need to save as much money as possible. And then you have an inexperienced sort of young, no longer a rookie, but a young driver and Mick Schumacher who's been crashing a lot, who's been making mistakes, and who's been sort of costing the team millions of dollars. His crash at Monaco, he's had crashes at other circuits too. Who wants to go on this first? Matt, Mick Schumacher and Haas, did we find out that this was a good fit for them after Drive to Survive? Or is this a terrible fit for both people? Uh, yeah, so let's be clear. This was always the wrong shoe on the wrong foot for Haas. Their entire stated method of working was to harvest veteran drivers because, as we have seen, experience is worth a lot more now than natural raw talent in this particular regulation set we find ourselves in. So their way of working was to get cheap veteran drivers who might otherwise have been kicked out of the sport and take advantage of them along with buying everything they can from Ferrari and just being a little bit clever on their own worked really well for them for the most part until everybody's favorite F1 sponsor rich energy stranded them without money and subsequently they get rid of their veteran drivers, both Magnuson and Groshan, and they bring in Mazepin and Mazepin's father's company as a sponsor, and they bring in Schumacher. This was never a great fit, but if they hadn't done that, we might have been, we might have said, you know, goodbye to the team. And now, obviously, world political events solved the problem of Mazepin and Mazepin's dad's country. Uh, company, sorry, uh, being on the team, but they were left with Schumacher when they brought Magnuson back in. And it was very clear to me early on from the way they presented it, that they weren't going to do a whole lot to make it easy for him. 
And if you think about it as well, Chris, you know, they had to bring in these these two guys, uh, Mazepin and Schumacher, because look, they put all their coins and all their money into one basket and all their eggs into one basket for 2022. And they actually started the season off on a good note. Q3, Magnussen qualifying in the top 10 in that car. And they had actually sort of a great plan there in that context. But where I don't think Mick fits the team is he's a very sort of nice personality, you know? And I, I know people draw comparisons to his dad, Michael Schumacher, seven-time world champion, ruthless guy, guy who would do anything to win a world championship. And Mick's coming in a context where he's just trying to, to, to get his feet wet in the sport. And he needs a sort of environment where he can make mistakes. I almost feel like Haas is probably one of the worst environments for him to be in, but he didn't really have any other options. So one of the things I picked up uh, during my ch- time working um, in the world of junior single seaters, was that a lot of different teams take a lot of very different approaches in how they coach and develop their young drivers. And you can have the soft nurturing uh, touch where you have a lot of very open dialogue and it's like, what do you need from us? And we can give that to you and let's work this out. And for me, that that has tended to be the more consistent um, approach that yields results over a, you know, a long period of time. Uh, but then you would get these big spikes of performance from the teams that were very hard and very aggressive with their drivers. And that's the kind of management style that is going on at Haas. And it very much mirrors what Formula One kind of needs to be. Formula One's very cutthroat. You know, there's not enough time to be lally-pallying around and giving a driver enough time to make mistakes and do all this, especially when Mick was destroying the car and not scoring points with it when he wasn't throwing it at walls, when it was very capable of scoring points. So to me, it's is a no-brainer that he ended up on the sidelines this year. I think, but- his, I think his performance is definitely weren't good enough. But you have to look into why his performances weren't good enough. And you just said there in regards to different styles of coaching, Chris. And it's in all forms of sport. And I think I think in particular, I don't think there's no really shimmering around it or that Gunther Steiner has come across now as a poor manager, as a poor coach. He has a very particular hard style of coaching. And he was very dismissive of Mick Schumacher at the start of the season. Magnussen coming back into the fold was like it was the prodigal son had returned and all their eggs were put into Magnussen's basket. There was no support and nurturing of Mick Schumacher. In essence, this is his rookie year because him and Mazepin had a car that was languishing at the very back of the grid, just not doing anything. It was so horrible for them to drive. He had to be a very poor teammate, which he pretty much did nine times out of 10. And I think overall for Mick Schumacher, I'm glad that he's out of that system now. And I do hope he gets another opportunity because it will then be uh, to salute to um, Gunther Steiner. But actually, do you know what? I was good enough. It It was you that was the problem. And I think that was perfectly wrapped up about everything I wanted to say on that topic. We are Matt, This is a guy who Haas has given up on because of crash damage. 
and adding more pressure every time. He needs to be instilled with confidence. And he's a young guy. He's not as ruthless. He doesn't have that type of personality. He needs confidence. And as Scott said, he's with a team boss that just, I think, mismanaged sort of his driver there. And I know Mick didn't perform on the racetrack, but I also think he wasn't helped by the pressure that Gunther was giving him. Right. So let's take issue with this. Do we all remember the uh, footage from Silverstone? where Mick scored points and almost passed Verstappen on track, albeit in an ailing Red Bull. Yeah, okay, that's the driver they could have had this season had they just bothered a little bit. But I'm going to disagree with you. I don't think it was mismanagement. I think they actively undermined him as a driver from the start. And I think if you look at Magnussen, who let's all recall what happened to him at McLaren as a rookie, I think Magnuson picked up on it and did everything he could to help Schumacher. But Schumacher is young and he has an uncommonly soft brain. I understand this. I suffered with this syndrome too. So we see footage of push, 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 Mick, push, Mick, push, Mick. Then what do you get? A crash. Did he really crash that much? No. Lots of drivers had more crashes than him. His crashes were very large and expensive. And that was used as an excuse to get rid of him. And I've seen it in the music world a lot, both at the extreme professional level, and I was told this story by someone who used to play in the Chicago Symphony, a conductor would just say, play softer, play softer, play softer, until someone cracked a note, and then you're fired. And then like in in the uh, conservatory level, where they'd be like, oh, that sounds good, play it again, play it again, play it again. So by the time they go play for someone, they've got no chops left at all. It's a very common thing, I think, Schumacher was taken advantage of that way by trusting, overly trusting in that circumstance, his race engineer, and they used it to purposely get rid of him. But again, I say, look at Silverstone. That's a driver that reasonably should be on the grid and has some talent, even if it takes him a while to get there. I think you're bang on in regards to the crashes being an excuse to get rid of him. But you have to look why those crashes came about because he was given conflicting information the whole time. He's being told to push and that he's not going fast enough and that he's too slow. Then when he does, he does he's lacking that confidence already because of the budget cap and he's probably been told behind closed doors to be careful. We can't we can't do this. Saudi Arabia, that crash was a big one and it was the second race of the season. So he's probably been told to telling off that look, we can't afford for that to happen. Gunther Steiner, there's footage of him saying to Gene Haas, that's going to cost probably a million to a million and a half. I mean, that's substantial amount of money. But then throughout the season, he's he's questioning his engineer going, well, well can I push? How are the brakes? Because he's clearly been given a telling off behind closed doors that you can't be doing this. And then he's being told that, oh, he's too slow and he needs to go faster and faster. So it's as... As a driver, where confidence is so important and they're traveling at substantial speeds, what does he know what to do? Whereas Magnussen, it seems like, was because he's the more experienced one, he's been told to, yeah, go out and and do what needs to be done. And he has that previous experience of even working with Gunther Steiner and probably knowing how to handle the the guys there. Well, Chris, on, on that note, not only did he not have the confidence of Gunther Steiner, but as Scott said, Gene Haas was not 
it, it sort of didn't help Mick Schumacher. And these conversations between Gunther and, and Gene behind the scenes, you could tell that Gene also didn't seem to be a, the biggest fan of Mick Schumacher. Yeah, because Gene's the one paying for his damage. And in defense of Haas, I can understand why it's such a concern for them when they were one of, if not the only team, to be operating underneath the budget cap. Now, that is, we have a different scenario now because they have the MoneyGram sponsorship and they've brought in a lot of new sponsors from North America as well. So that's not as much of an issue now. But they also have two much more experienced drivers who, well, in theory, won't be chucking it at the scenery uh, quite so much. So I have a little bit of sympathy for the guy who writes the paychecks to the guy who keeps smashing up his car. Matt? And the thing I want to add to that, uh, one is I think, you know, Steiner very much fanned that flame. But at the end of the day, as I discussed at the beginning of this, this was never a driver they really wanted to hire. They never wanted to hire rookies and train them. That was not the business plan. So I'm not surprised Haas didn't like him because that didn't fit with what he thought they were going to do in the first place. It was only out of necessity that they found themselves with Schumacher as one of their drivers. And of course, the F-word count from Gunther Steiner in this Drive to Survive series was probably at an absolute high as well. That had, if, if, if you were doing a world championship on that, Haas would win their first world championship, I'll tell you right now. Um, what a series it was. Uh, this is our panel of guests, uh, guests, Matt, Chris, and Scott. Follow us all. I'm Jonathan Simon. We can follow us all on social media. Check the show notes, of course, for that. But for now, it's back to Spanners in the Shed. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan and the team. If you want to follow those guys on social media, and I think you should, go and follow the links in the show notes below. The links to all their social media is there. And there's also a link to our Patreon. If you got this far, maybe you'd consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash missed apex. A little bit of extra content from us every couple of weeks, an ad-free feed and a patron forum on Slack. But the number one thing we could really, really do with here on Missed Apex podcast at the start of the season is to tell your friends. If you want them to enjoy Missed Apex in the way you do, just share the link with them, www.mistapex.net. Stick that in the forums you're in, the Facebook groups you're in, post it on Twitter and tag us. You are our number one tool for getting us out there and getting us into the ears of people who might enjoy this sort of ridiculousness. Until we see you next, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.